Welcome to the Trinity Galewood podcast. Here you'll find live messages recorded during our weekly services at Trinity. We are a community that desires to look, live, and love more like Jesus. We're located at 1701 North Narragansett in Chicago and meet every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Trinity Galewood podcast. Well, Trinity Galewood, it is uh, a pleasure and an honor to be worshiping with you guys again. Um, I had the privilege of kicking off this series a couple weeks ago. And uh, this is a series that we have been calling Visions of Hope, in which we've been looking at a really bizarre book of the Bible. We've been looking at the book of Ezekiel. It is a bizarre book because it is filled with really strange messages and strange uh, visions and imagery. It's one of these books that quite honestly, like when people work their way through the Bible, this is one of the ones they skip over, right? Like we love the book of Genesis. That's the beginning, right? God creates everything, kind of tells us how stuff got messed up with the fall. Tells us, you know, stories about how God is trying to put it back together through Abraham. We get to Exodus, action-packed book, right? You know, we make movies about Exodus. Everybody knows a little something about that story. Get to Ezekiel, skip it, move to Jesus, and the Bible goes on, right? That's like we just jump right over this book. And yet what we have been finding as we've been moving through this series is that actually Buried within this really bizarre book are visions of hope. Visions of hope that are incredibly relevant and contemporary for us. Visions that, quite honestly, we need in a world that is constantly changing and constantly uncertain. And so uh, we come to the end of Ezekiel today to actually the longest vision in the entire book. But before we dive into it, I think it's only right that we allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the message he has for us. So would you please bow your heads and pray together with me? Let's pray. Lord God, we give you thanks that in the midst of our uncertain world, you give us visions of hope, visions that are meant to sustain us, visions that are meant to remind us of your goodness and your love for us. And so, Lord, as we come before your word once more, God, we ask that you would indeed help us to see with fresh eyes what you are doing, that we might place our hope and our trust in you. Lord, open our hearts and our minds to receive that word. And God, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So uh, a little something about me. Uh, one of the things that I love, uh, I've grown to love actually in recent years is what I would call restorative art. I don't know if you're familiar with restorative art. Restorative art basically takes stuff that is broken and discarded, run down and left for trash and turns it into something beautiful. Uh, some of my favorite forms of restorative art is actually uh, the, the sculpture known as the Tree of Life, which comes to us from the country of Mozambique. The Tree of Life was actually created by four sculptors, and what they did is they took all the discarded bullet casings, artillery shells, and guns that had been used in the civil wars that had torn that country apart. And they gathered up about 600,000 of these weapons and these discarded shells, and and they formed them into this beautiful tree, this Tree of Life. They called it the tree of life because they were thinking about this image that we find at both the beginning and at the end of the Bible, 
where it says that when God dwells with his people in his creation, he gives them the tree of life and its fruit and its leaves are for the healing of the nations. In many ways, what they did is they took these weapons of war, they fused them back into a prayer, a physical and tangible prayer that said, this is what we hope and long for, the day when God will come and bring healing to that which is broken, when he will take all the weapons of violence and melt them down and turn our broken world into something beautiful. A tangible reminder of what our God promises to do. Or I think about the, uh, the Japanese uh, art form of kintsugi. Kintsugi is where they take broken pottery, broken dishes and pieces of china, and rather than throwing them away, what they end up doing is they end up carefully and painstakingly piecing them back together and they fuse them together using gold dust in the lacquer. So that actually the piece that was broken now shines even more beautifully, not in spite of its brokenness, but because of it. The brokenness shines as a reminder of this, this piece of pottery's history and stands as a testament to the power of what happens when a skilled artist is able to take what others would have discarded and fuse it back together again. And see, this is why I love restorative art, because it comes with stories, stories that we need to hear in the midst of a broken world. And in some ways, it actually bears greater testimony to the skill of the artist when they can do this, right? I mean, it's one thing to like already have a, a perfect uh, piece of pottery, right? A, a fresh lump of clay that you can use um, because that, that, that's, that's the, a, a blank uh, palette, a, a blank slate, right? You can form and shape that into anything that you desire. But to take something that's broken, to take something that, that somebody else has, would have just thrown away and to bring it back, to restore it and make it even more beautiful, that shows the real skill and gifts of an artist. Where other people would have given up, an artist is able to look at something that's discarded and say, that the st this thing's story is not done, but rather can be turned into something even more beautiful. So why do, I, why do I talk about this? Because honestly, that's exactly what's happening in the final vision that we have from Ezekiel's book. It actually is a vision that starts in chapter 40 and goes all the way to the end of chapter 48, the longest vision that we find in the entire book of Ezekiel's prophecies. We read in chapter 40, it says, in the 25th year of our exile... At the beginning of the year, on the 10th of the month, in the 14th year, after the fall of this city, on that very day, the hand of the Lord was on me, and he took me there. This is important for us because we've got to remember Ezekiel's story, right? Ezekiel's story began in a very depressing place. His home, the city of Jerusalem, had been laid siege, and its people had been carried off into slavery in Babylon. 
In just a few short years after that first exile, the the people who remained tried to lead a rebellion, and then Nebuchadnezzar came back, and now not only did he lay siege to the city, but he smashed it flat. He destroyed the temple. He crushed it to rubble. He ripped down its walls. He set fire to its buildings, and he laid waste to the surrounding land and to the countryside, making it practically uninhabitable. It would have been easy for anybody looking at that city, looking at the land of Israel to say, it's so broken, it can never be remade. It can never be restored. All that was left of its great towers and its great walls is now lying in the dust. And yet what's so beautiful is is what God then does here starting in Ezekiel 40. It says that God takes him back to the city takes him back to the thing that had been destroyed and abandoned. And what he sees when he gets there is he sees that the city has been rebuilt. The first thing he encounters is he encounters the walls which have been restored. And uh, beyond the walls, he sees large buildings And as he goes in this vision through the city and and begins to tour its streets, what he sees is something that's actually far more amazing, far more beautiful than anything that he could have possibly imagined. He goes to the Temple Mount where now he sees the temple, but it's even larger and more beautiful and more grand than the temple that they had left. He sees the entire city has actually been rebuilt and restored. And what God is telling Ezekiel as he moves through this city is he's saying, this is what I promise and commit to do for you. Because as we heard in in chapter 40, they've already been in exile now for 25 years. And what we know from biblical history is that that's really only the first quarter of the time that they spend in exile. Be tempting in those moments for the people to feel like there's no way we're going home. 25 years. There's some people in this room right now. You haven't been on this earth for 25 years. Can you imagine having been born in exile? Having been told that you had a home that was taken from you. And yet here God is saying, one day I'm going to bring you all back to this place. And you are going to see how I have restored it, remade it, and healed it, and made it whole. And the reason why God says that is because he wants them to understand that he is a God who doesn't give up on his creation. He is a God who doesn't give up on his people. Rather, he is a God who delights in taking things that the world would have abandoned, that the world would have called a dead end, the final page of a story, and says, no, in my hands, that is just a new beginning. It's something that we actually see all over the Bible if we stop and we think about it for just a moment. Consider the central image, the central images of the Christian faith, right? Oftentimes people will wear this around their necks, right? Maybe somebody's even wearing a little bit of cross jewelry. Uh, This morning, yeah, I see a couple people like, I got some, I have a cross on my necklace. We need to realize for a second though what we're doing when we put that around our neck. Because in the ancient worlds, In the time in which Jesus was crucified, that was not something that was seen as beautiful. It was not seen as a piece of jewelry for your adornment. It was a a tool of execution. 
the very last day of, of his life, what do we find Jesus? Well, we find him on a cross, nailed to it and being tortured. He'd been abandoned by his followers. He'd been condemned by his people. The powers that be had placed him there and mocked him and tortured him. The end of Good Friday ends with a man being tortured on a cross and a body being laid in a tomb. Things that our world would look at and basically say, that's it. That's the end. Life is over. There is absolutely no hope, no restoration, no possibility of anything good coming out of this. And yet, what do we call it as Christians? We call it Good Friday. Why? Because what God says looks like an ending is simply the way forward into a new beginning, isn't it? Because when Jesus went to that cross, he said that what you all see as your final end, what our world would say is our ju- what we justly deserve, he says, I'm going to do something miraculous and amazing. Why? Because three days later, both the cross and the tomb were empty. The cross and the tomb were empty. Because Jesus walked out of his tomb again. He said that on that cross, I paid for everything. Every crime human beings could commit, every selfish indulgence, every way in which we have simply participated in the brokenness of our world, I paid for it there. I took the punishment that you deserved and now I have risen again from the dead so that you know that that is not your end, that death is not the end of the story. Jesus took what our world would have said, there's no way you can come back from this and he made it new. He opened a door to a new life, to a new way of living. And you see, that's exactly what's happening in this final vision from the book of Ezekiel. God is taking him back to the ruined city and he's saying, do you know who I am? I am the rebuilder of walls. I am the restorer of that which is broken. I am the one who welcomes home the outcast, who delivers the exile and the slave. I'm the one who takes the brokenness of our world and out of it brings forth something new. And lest we doubt it, notice what then happens after they get to the temple itself. It says that the man brought me back to the entrance of the temple. And I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, the south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me round the outside to the outer gate facing east. And the water was trickling from the south side. And as the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and led me through the water that was ankle deep. They went a little bit further and now the water is knee deep. They go further and it's up to the waist and finally they go even further and you can't even cross it. And the thing that's so amazing is that this water just doesn't stop. Rather, this river continues to flow and this is what he says. This water flows toward the eastern region. And goes down into the Arabah where it enters the Dead Sea. And when it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. What's going on in this vision? 
What God is saying here is he's saying, look, I'm not just going to restore you back to this one city. I'm not just going to bring my glory back to this one temple. Rather, the healing and the restoration that I will do will flow forward from this place and will touch all of creation. There's a reason why the Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea. Can anybody guess? We've got some good biblical scholars here. Why is the Dead Sea called the Dead Sea? Because it's dead. Yeah, geniuses, right? Like so hard, like super descriptive name. Nothing grows in the Dead Sea. If you were to go to the Dead Sea now today, you are not going to find fish, uh, you're not going to find fish living in it. You're not going to find animals drinking from it. There are no plants that grow around it because it is so salty that nothing can possibly survive. The region that it's found in is a dry desert place where absolutely nothing grows. And yet what God is saying is he's saying, when I come in my glory, the desert places will be green. The water where life cannot possibly thrive will become fresh. He says, in fact, fishermen will stand at its banks along the shore and they will be able to spread their nets and catch fish of multiple kinds like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. He says that animals will come and drink at its banks, that these dry desert places will become places of new life. And then listen to this. He says, fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them and their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. It is an all-encompassing vision of the kind of restoration that God promises to bring. And what's so crazy is, this vision shows up in one other place in the Bible. Can you guess where? It's at the very end of the story. That if you were to go all the way to the book of Revelation, after all is said and done, When Jesus comes again in his glory, this is what we read. The Apostle John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And as John walks through that new city, that restored Jerusalem, what does he see? The angel showed me the river of the water of life, clear uh, clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every single month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And there will be no more curse. 
the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be upon their foreheads. There will be no more night. They won't need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Final words of the Bible promise a day when God will make all things new. The final words of the book of Ezekiel give us a vision of the promise that God makes to his people. In fact, the last sentence of Ezekiel's entire book is this, the name of the city from that time on will be the Lord is there. This is a vision of hope that we desperately need in our world where everything seems to be broken. Where we find ourselves and our governments seemingly unable to actually meet the needs of their people. When we find ourselves combating a pandemic that seems to throw us from one loop after another. Where we encounter in our daily lives the plans that we thought we had crumbling to dust. What God says is he says, I'm not done. Not done yet. I still have work to do. And my promise is, is that one day I will come and I will make all things new. And lest you doubt it, look to my son. Look to the lamb whose cross is now empty, whose tomb is laid bare. For I have faced death and darkness and walked out the other side. That is but a foretaste of the work that I will ultimately do to you. And that's the hope that I give you, Ezekiel. That's the message you need to continue to preach. He actually tells Ezekiel, I want you to tell them everything that you saw. Describe this city to them. Tell them what I have shown you. That my people may have hope. That they might know that their God is the one who restores what is broken. He is the master artist who gathers, gathers up the broken shards of our world and makes them new. And one day I will come again in glory. And I will heal the hurting. I'll bring light to the darkness. I'll transform death into life. And all the old order of things will pass away. The reason why I think God gives Ezekiel this as the final vision of his book is because it's something that we need. It reminds us that though we face dark and difficult circumstances, God has not given up on us. And as a result, I think there are two questions that we have to walk away from this text with. The first question is this, how do you view your present trials and circumstances? It's tempting when life gets hard to think that God has abandoned us. And yet what we understand now from Ezekiel is God is saying, no, even in the midst of the brokenness, I'm still at work. I can take what is broken and make it new. I'm reminded of these words from the noted psychologist Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. She's the one who actually uh, uh, created the five stages of grief. This is what she says. I think this is so beautiful. She says, the most beautiful people are those who've known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, known loss, and found their way out of the depths. 
these persons have an appreciation, a sensitivity, and an understanding of life that fills them with compassion, gentleness, and a deep, loving concern. Beautiful people do not just happen. They're made. They're forged. They're refashioned by the God who is the master artist, who is able to take all of our brokenness and scars and out of them bring something new and beautiful. And so in the midst of whatever you face, do not despair, for you are in the hands of a loving God who promises, I can make all things new. And what he says is one day you will look back on the trials you face and you will see what I have been doing. How I have been making you and inviting you to become a part of the renewing work that I am doing in the world. So don't lose hope. Second question we have to ask ourselves is what brokenness do you long to see restored? As you look at our world and you see things that rend your hearts, Know that it rends God's heart as well. And his invitation is, he says, step into it with me. Be a part of the restoring work that I am doing because my promise is that one day I will make all things new. But it starts here, now. As we look at the world around us and we say, what would it look like for the master artist to remake what other people have abandoned? I remember that was something that I saw when I first went to UIC as a college minister and I walked through the student union. A building that was built in the 60s, looks like Soviet era architecture with its giant concrete pillars. And I remember walking around and going from student lounge to student lounge to student lounge and I saw different communities of students in each lounge. Muslim Students Association and the Arab students, they were in one lounge. I saw Latino students in another lounge, Asian students in another lounge, black students in another lounge, white students in another lounge. I remember walking around and and asking them, what is it like to be a student here? And a lot of the students said, well, what I loved about being here is it's great because I find other people like me. And I said, that's great. That's beautiful. What about getting to know other communities? And they said, nah, we don't do that. And our heart, my heart broke. Fellow campus ministers' hearts broke. And we started to say, but what would it look like for a community in this place? to be a place where everybody comes together as one family, where these invisible walls that exist between these student lounges are broken down as people realize that each one of them is made in the image of God and is beautiful in his sight and is welcomed into a family that looks like something the rest of the world has never seen before. And we started a multi-ethnic student ministry there. It's part of what motivated Trinity to walk into this place. And it was just called Bethany Lutheran Church. And there were 12 people here who didn't live in the neighborhood with no pastor. We turned around and said, we have this building. We have no debt. Do you think you could do something with this? And we said, no, but we know somebody who can. We know that our God can do something with this place. And over the last five years, we've watched as something beautiful has happened here as God's kingdom has brought different groups of people together, as he's moved this church out of these four walls and into the surrounding community, as we've seen people come to taste and see that the Lord is good and that in his hands what previously had been abandoned and broken down is restored, that this church is filled with you. You're here now. You're a part of this mission. 
And it is beautiful in God's sight. This is just a foretaste of the kind of work God has called us to do together as a community of faith. Because this is who our God is. He looks at the world and he says, not done. He looks at places that other people pass by and he says, beautiful in my sight. He says that in my hands, I can bring healing and wholeness and new life. Join me in the work that I'm doing as I make all things new. So don't give up hope, but rather follow knowing the God that we worship is a God who truly has come to dwell with his people. Let us pray. Lord God, we give you thanks that in your hands, nothing is abandoned or forsaken. That in your hands, everything can be made new. And so rather than giving up, we pray that we would lean in, that we would cling even more desperately to you and see the work that only you can do. Lord, that's the hope that you give to us. And we pray that that would be the hope that we give to others. That through us, Lord, you would indeed restore all things and that together we would celebrate the day when you come again and make all things new. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.